You are listening to the Once Upon a Time in Texas podcast, where we look at Texas history that we know, the Texas history that we know we don't know, and the Texas history that we don't know we don't know. Now, here are your hosts, Arnoldo Mata and Davis Rankin. Well, Davis, today we have a very, very interesting uh, interview. We've got uh, Dr. Jesus F. or Frank, for Frank, de la Teja. Um, he's a, um, a well-known uh, mm -hmm. historian. He, he was a professor at Texas State University in San Marcos. Um, he's got a, a, a distinguished list of, of research and history, uh, but I think he's well-known as being the uh, inaugural Texas State Historian. Ah, he was the first person know. to be the official state historian. I didn't know that. Uh, he has an interesting story about how that came about, and, and we'll, we'll talk to him in, in a few minutes about that. Um, it's sort of a bookend in a sense, except he's, he's originally from... He's actually a Cuban. He was born in Cuba. I'm okay. not sure that makes a lot of sense, but... Yeah, how, how did a, a, a Cuban wind up doing history in Texas? He needed a job, and he was very polite, and he really knows his stuff. It, it is it, That is actually part of the story. Uh, but today we want to talk to him about, about his book, a, a Revolution Remembered, The Memoirs and Selected Correspondence of Juan N. Seguin. Seguin, of course, is one of the uh, heroes of the uh, Texas Revolution. And there's a um, town named after him, right? It is. It is. It's a it, very nice little town. And it's... Um, parenthetical aside, th there's a lot, a lot of, in a lot of manufacturing is is ending up in that county. I mean, a lot, big manufacturing jobs. I, and does it all come from it being named after Seguin? Does he have an influence in that? Um, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I would assert that, and no one can <laughs> say other. No one That's can right. say they have otherwise. To prove, they have to prove us wrong first. That's right. Well, I did not realize. Um, that Juan Seguin was that accomplished and really that central to the story of the Texas what, Reve revolution, rebellion. Uh, mm -hmm. Frank Hardin calls it more a rebellion than a revolution. In some ways, it's a civil war. And it may be a civil war with Yankee Anglo carpetbaggers looking for land, but it was still in some sense a civil war because the people – like Stephen F. Austin, those guys, they were Mexican citizens. So they rose against their fellows, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. And it's never really cast that way, but. Well, so, I think it shows the, the divisions that, that you had within the Texas population at the time. Some people yeah. wanted to, some people didn't want to. In, in a way, it's very similar to what happened during the, Amer the American Revolution. You had a lot of families that mm -hmm. were not quite for the revolution. But of course, once it's over, you kind of go with what's there. Anyway, so uh, his is an interesting story, the, uh, his personal story as, as a historian. And then, of course, uh, he, he will share with us um, his uh, work on, on the book. And the, the, in other words, he's, his work on the book, and he has a reading list, too, right? If you want to get boned yep. up on Texas history, because there's a lot, there's a lot that's being published now as we found out doing this this uh, podcast um, but there was a there were some seminal works before and Mr. De La Teja's books part of that part of that oeuvre 
yes. get that French word. And in I there. think for, for our listeners, uh, they can look for a separate episode. It's a short episode where, where we talk with him about that. Okay. So, so with that, um, here's our interview with Dr. De La Teja. When it was time to look for PhD programs, uh, I started applying uh, to a number of schools that um, I thought would be good fit. The one that made me the best offer was the University of Texas. I came here in 1981. Was that a big cultural jump for you to come from New Jersey to Texas? It, in some ways, I think the um, when you're a graduate student and you're going to be around the university and you're going to be around other graduate students and whatnot, there's a there's a buffering effect to that because yeah. you're you're still dealing in an academic world and with people with very similar interests. The weather certainly was was new and the cuisine yes. was new. I was finally introduced to Mexican Tex-Mex. Right. And uh, so that was uh, that was a new one. And I want I wound up working for James Michener. And I, I was going to ask about that. How did that come? That happened almost immediately, because although I hadn't been interested in Texas at all, it wasn't you may think my name refers to Texas, but it doesn't. It just right. No. I was in a, a class called The Greatest State in Latin America with Eric Van Young, and he was a new Latin Americanist at UT. The chair of the department asked him to recommend a couple of people to work for Michener as a research assistant because Michener was being invited to UT to write his next novel, which was going to be about Texas. And because I was such a wallflower and, and such a non-entity in the seminar class, uh, ben Young asked, I would be interested in it. And of course, and it, it was an opportunity to avoid being a grader. Even if you get a scholarship or two the first year, mm-hmm. after that, you're expected to do something. And that something normally is being a grader, a teaching assistant. And I said, this, this beats being a research assistant, hands down. And I can, I can pick this stuff up. So I worked for James Michener for two and a half years. And in the course of those two and a half years, I discovered Colonial Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I joke about the fact that it was a lot of fun because it allowed me to play cowboys and Indians in a different context than the one I grew up with. And of course, the, the social environment in which I grew up, uh, cowboys and Indians was a part of a, every little boy's uh, growing up. You don't see that very much anymore. My, no, my grandson no. doesn't talk about cowboys and it's all about superheroes. Right. In any case, it was an eye-opening experience because there, uh, there seemed to be such a dearth of information about the um, what I'll call the Tejanos. And by that, I mean the Hispanic population of early Texas, the the people who came to Texas to make a life here and those who were born here, the generations that grew up in a frontier environment that lasted from the time the province was founded in 1718, well past not only Mexican independence, but Texas independence Mm -hmm. and statehood and the Civil War and all the way up through the late 19th century. So the the experience of Tejanos and Mexican-Americans in Texas is one of a frontier life over a 200-year period, which is something that a lot of people don't don't think about very much. They think about the frontier life being Anglo-Americans moving westward. But here are people who are moving northward in a frontier setting. And it was fascinating for me to, to see how they negotiated that and how they integrated Spanish practices with indigenous practices with being in an, in an international setting where they had to deal with Frenchmen and Englishmen and Americans and how they became a distinct people, even if their numbers were very small. 
and their numbers made, were very small. You made the point before that Texas history really isn't just Texas history. Exactly. That it is actually international history because you do have the confluence of Spain, Mexico, France, the U.S., Native Americans, and other cultures coming in, which I think most people don't really think of in terms in Texas history. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, when we got an opportunity, uh, one of the projects I worked on when I became a, a history professor was the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum. Mm-hmm. And my colleagues and I who worked on it uh, decided that since we'd done all this research in preparation to help uh, design the content of the museum, one of the things we would do is write a college-level textbook. And we chose as a title, Texas Crossroads of North America, mm-hmm. uh, precisely because there are all of these veins of culture, economy, politics there uh, that kind of meet here in Texas in a way. So uh, Texas is really a, not only a large place, but it's also a multidimensional, a, a diverse place. Yes. And, and it has unfortunately been characterized in, in a very stereotypical kind of, it's just part of the West, but it wasn't, it was part of the South. Slavery was very important. It was part of Mexican and is part to this very day, part of Mexican history, whether the political classes uh, or parts of the political classes in both countries choose to ignore it or not. Texas is very much integrated, very much a part of Mexican economic, political and, and social life. Uh, as it is in in um, American social life. So that's my perspective. And I came to it because I'm an outsider. So I didn't bring any baggage along. I oh. didn't grow up in a biased, prejudicial, mm-hmm. sometimes segregated environment as my wife did, having been from New Jersey and having been uh, Cuban and in some respects privileged because of that, because we were because we were refugee people in the 60s and 70s, we were treated very kindly. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't come with any expectations that I had to represent anything in particular. I could just dig into the story and see what it told me. And right. what it told me was is this very rich, involved history that has that has many threads to it, and that unfortunately wasn't being very well represented in the historiography. But it was changing at the time that I started my studies, and, mm-hmm. I, and I have often commented that I wouldn't be able to do as much of the work that I have been able to do if it wasn't for the pioneers in Mexican-American history, some of whom are still prominent in the profession today. Some mm-hmm. of them have, have uh, either passed on or retired. But if it wasn't for people like Arnoldo de Leon mm-hmm. um, and Emilio Zamora and David Montejano and other people who were either the very first generation that got into those graduate schools in the in the late 60s, early 70s, and pioneered really a new Mexican-American history, a new Chicano history, a new Tejano history, whatever term you want to use for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those of us who came later, who then found the field much more open and accepting that that was a valid strain of history to, um, or vein of history to mine, then we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to each other. So in in other words, I came to Texas at, at the right time, and Texas was and is very, very good to me. 
And the the irony is that I'm I'm not uh, a Texan, but I but I but I have a Texan family. My wife's a native, and my kids have uh, set down roots about ten minutes away from me. And oh, yeah. so we're all ensconced in South Austin. I was impressed that you were named the first ever state historian. How did that come about? <laughs> well, I wasn't supposed to be the first. The legislation that was passed establishing the the state historian position, Rick Perry was still governor. Mm -hmm. And it was a plan by a group of people in the Historical Commission and the State Historical Association to have a position that would that could advocate for the importance of Texas history in policy discussions, in education discussions, and do outreach for this this broader, more diverse, more multifaceted Texas that was developing, but that that had a history that was very one-dimensional. It was essentially the Anglo-Western experience mythologized. Unfortunately, there's still way too much of that. It's very difficult to it's it's very difficult to undercut Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and is. Hollywood, well, Hollywood has wound up framing the story of Texas in such a way that we spend an, an awful lot of time battling those those stories. And those stories actually came out of dime novels from the late 19th mm -hmm. and early 20th century. Right. Um, so Hollywood, those Hollywood scripts were nothing more than converting dime store novels into into short stories that then became big stories that then became epics that then became as the as the reporter at the end of the man who shot liberty valance says if if there's a conflict between truth fiction print to fiction print, print right. what people but anyway the, the point is that they uh, they got they got the legislature to pass the bill which established the office of state historian for the first time that was in 2005 and they gave co-responsibility to the Historical Commission and the, and the um, State Historical Association for nominating someone to the governor. And the original plan was for me to be second or third when the time came for the social studies standards to be revisited so that I could apply my interest in making sure that the, that the history of the state uh, adequately re reflected where the state was and who was a Texan and not the the old mythologized version mm -hmm. of things, of which there was way too much of in the curriculum. But what happened was the, the first person to get nominated turned out to be persona non grata to the... Oh. Uh, to the governor. Yes, there's a, well, you know, there's, there's politics involved. What a surprise. Um, yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> And because I had been very careful about trying to, my, my philosophy has always been that you, get, you, you, you do catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. My attitude had always been, I want to work with these groups. I want to work mm -hmm. with the daughters of the Republic of Texas. I want to work with the sons. I want to work with these other, these groups that haven't been exposed to these stories, but are more and more willing to listen to them. They may not agree with you at the end of the day, but at least they're willing yes. to listen. So yeah. rather than throw hand grenades and, mm -hmm. and scream and yell and carry on, and I would rather be a much more subtle about it and try to convince people that there's no threat here other than that we can make this pie bigger than it is. It doesn't, the pie doesn't have to stay the same. We can right. have yeah. much richer 
experience if we look at these other contributions to the story of Texas. But because the person was non grata, then I was moved up. And so I didn't become the first state his Texas State historian because of my accomplishments as much as because they had a need for me at that point. And in fact, it has been rather embarrassing for me to be the state, the first state historian, because I, there were other people who mm-hmm. had done a lot more than, than I had by the time I got the position. So not that I couldn't do it, but that uh, there were other people uh, for whom it would be a, a the, the proper recognition of their careers. Hmm. Uh, so I got mine a little bit earlier than, than I should have, but it uh, through no fault of my own. Well, but, but nonetheless, it is deserved, I think. Uh, but let me get turn to the book. The book is actually The Revolution Remembered, The Mem- Memoirs and Selected Correspondence of Juan A. Seguin. And you, do a, you break it up into three sections where you divide it into an introduction about uh, Juan Seguin and his history, and as you call it, the making of a Tejano, and then his uh, memoirs, and then uh, the correspondence and other documents. Why did you break it down that way? Okay, well, that, that was a project that was brought to me by the people who ran State House Press at the time. It was a small independent press that published a lot of reprints mm-hmm. of historical, significant historical works in Texas history, and then also new material. And they came to me at, uh, and they said, well, you know, we would like to reprint Juan Seguin's memoirs. We'd like you to do a new translation. And I had to say, well, we can't do a new translation because the original Spanish doesn't exist uh, or isn't known to exist. The only thing we have is what was published. And so what I can do for you is I can write an introduction and annotate the memoirs because there's a lot of stuff in there that unless you read the notes, unless you read the annotations, you don't know what they're talking, what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so they said, sure. So on the basis of that, I offered to do the first two parts. But then I had to do research work in order to answer those questions that were raised by the memoirs, the Mm -hmm. the holes that were there, corroborating what he said. There were conflicts Mm -hmm. in the historical record and whatnot. So what can I what can I prove? How accurate? is is one in the story that he's telling. And in that phase of the work, I started collecting uh, documents. I was greatly assisted by uh, Jack Jackson, who'd been working on Tejano history since the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a comic book illustrator, and he was a commercial artist, particularly designing posters for musical events hmm. uh, in the Austin area. That's interesting. He had a, but he was from South uh, Texas. Uh, he had a particular interest in uh, Tejano history. And so he collected a lot of material and he published a comic book treatment of Juan Seguin in the revolution called Los Tejanos. And he collected a lot of material for that. So Jack was very generous with me. He just gave me the box of material. He said, go, yeah. go, go for it, use it. And so between that and the other material that I collected, I assembled a kind of a mini archive of Juan Seguin material. So I went back to the people at State House Press and I said, well, look, I've done these two parts, but we don't have any published archival material for any 19th century Tejano figure. We just don't have it. Here's an opportunity 
to actually publish documentation about, admittedly, the most important Tejano military figure of the revolution. And they were kind enough to say, well, go for it. So what had been a two-part, an introduction Mm -hmm. and an annotated memoirs, then became three parts, the introduction, the annotated memoirs, and then the supporting material that allows us to, and allows other scholars really to use it uh, to further the story of telling the story of of, uh, of Tejanos in the revolution. That supporting material is really interesting and I, I want to get to it, but let's start with the life of Erasmo and Juan Seguin. What can you mm-hmm. tell us and why are those two people so critical to Texas history? Right. Well, it's, and again, it starts with Juan because when they asked me to do Juan, I said, well, let's, let's do the introduction, but it's not just about him. Part of what the problem that Texas history has had is the limited scope that is given to the participation of, of or was given to the participation of Tejano. So it's, it's, it's like they just suddenly appear. And the only reason that they're there is support whatever it is the Anglos are doing. So the only thing we we had ever heard about um, Jose Antonio Navarro and Francisco Ruiz is that they were the two native-born signers of the Texas Declaration of Independence. Yes. Uh, we now have very good biographies of both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the case of Juan Seguin, uh, we knew that he was from San Antonio and that he became the leading Tejano military figure during the revolution. And that was pretty much it. It was about him. It's like he was in, he was operating in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And so my, my goal in doing the introduction, the making of a Tejano was say, Hey, this guy is on one side of his family, a fifth generation Tejano. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, a fourth generation Tejano. And from the time that they were, that the, that Seguin, a Seguin arrived in in Texas, in San Antonio, in the first half of the 18th century, they had been prominent members of the San Antonio community. They had been political and social leaders, and some of them had been rather feisty uh, advocates for local interests against the crown. So there's a history there. Once again, just doesn't come out of nowhere, he's part of this multi-generational experience in in Texas. And the man who I think, I frame it that way in the introduction, and I've done more work since, who frames who uh, Juan Seguin is, is his father, Erasmus, who is, again, not only the son of of this rather feisty individual who got into trouble with the government on more than one occasion, but who, at an early age, becomes a postmaster of San Antonio, who has a leading role in the Mexican War of Independence, the first episode of the Mexican War of Independence in Texas, who goes on to be uh, the agent of the Spanish government when they go to retrieve Moses Austin and wind up bringing Stephen F. Austin back to Texas in Mm -hmm. 1821, who then serves as the Texas representative at the Constituent Congress that writes the federal constitution of 1824, who has business interests with uh, not only Austin, but other Anglo-Americans who in the 18, who during a revolution, he's older, but he supports the, the revolution by lending material supplies, provisions to the revolutionary government and who finishes his 
public life by serving as uh, Justice of the Peace in, in San Antonio in the, in the post-Texas independence period. So here's a man who served the Spanish government, the Mexican government, and then the Republic of Texas government. And he had a tremendous influence on, on his son. So Erasmus Seguin is worthy of study as a pivotal figure because at key moments between the 18 teens and the 1830s, he is involved in central events in, in Texas history. So his son, who, when he's a child, sees his father accused of treason by the Spanish government, has, as a teenager, has to take over running the post office in San Antonio while his father's in Mexico City, who has not only the inspiration, but the role model of public service in the actions of his father. So they're, they, they are very much worthy of serving as, as good models for understanding the development of Texas, again, between the, the beginning of the 19th century and all the way up through the statehood and, and beyond. So yeah. you, you have, in father and son, you have this continuity, this thread for understanding Texas history that I think is, is really fascinating interesting, important, pivotal to getting a grip on the real life, because that's the other thing that I didn't mention before. We have personal correspondence of Erasmus Seguin between him, his wife, and Juan from the time he's in, in uh, Mexico City at the Constitutional Convention. So in a way, we, we have a pretty good record of how these guys, uh, how these men felt about public service on behalf of Texas. In traditional Texas history, uh, Juan Seguin doesn't pop up until the Texas Revolution. But uh, obviously he had done more before that. Exactly. How did he become such a skilled military figure? How did he get to that point? Well, I think it was on-the-job training. Actually, one of the things that Erasmo did in, uh, in the immediate post-independence period was actually command uh, San Antonio's militia company for a while. Post-independence, he ran, he ran the militia. He was the commanding officer of the militia for a while. And his son was still very young. He's still been a teenager at that time. Mm -hmm. So he would have seen this. Uh, one of the things that uh, most of these Tejanos had to do was they, they had to learn certain skills that came in handy for frontier militia work. Uh, they had to ride horses. They had to do a certain amount of scouting. They had to know the, the lay of the land. They, in, in, in other words, they had to be uh, very well instructed in how you got around a Texas that didn't have interstate highways right. and, uh, and 7-Elevens um, <laughs> and it's, such. These, um, were, these were essentially survival skills because absolutely. You, you had to deal with the threat of uh, Native American tribes. You had to deal with the threat of the climate, geography, and so on. These were essentially survival schools, were they not? Beyond, yeah, survival skills and beyond. And because one of the things that you had to learn, especially if you came from a prominent family like Seguin, you also had to learn leadership skills. You had to become, uh, you had to know how to give orders. You had to learn how to handle tricky situations. You had to have, a, you had to learn how to be a, a leader and you were expected. Once again, would have been expected not only by his father, but the broad range of, of family and friends and uh, political and economic associates 
um, Erasmo would have been expected to become a civic leader. And mm -hmm. as, a, uh, as a robust young man, part of that was uh, serving in the militia. And, and so he, I won't say rises through the ranks, but he, he moves into, into that leadership position naturally as, as part of, of who he is by being a Seguin in, in San Antonio in the early 19th century. One of the things that, that helped the Texas Revolution was the fact that Sam Houston, at least, relied on the Tejanos for get, getting gathering intelligence on the movements of the Mexican army and so on. And so they were familiar with the area, the area south of San Antonio and around San Antonio, all the way to, to the border. Unlike the um, Anglos, especially the ones who had just recently come in, I'm assuming that was a crucial role that Juan filled for the Texas Revolution. Yes, and he wasn't the only one, obviously. Right. There, were, there were others. Essentially, uh, their job, and to be quite honest with you, we know that they weren't trusted to the degree that might otherwise you might otherwise think. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, he and his men and the other uh, Tejanos who participated provided valuable uh, intelligence. Uh, they were in a position to move quickly. They were working in their native language. They were working in, in and among people who they, they had lived their entire lives. Uh, so there was an element of trust there that, that Anglos wouldn't have had. They wouldn't have had entry to a lot of these places where the Tejanos did. So in, and the, the Tejanos certainly knew that how to operate in uh, what today we might call guerrilla or mm -hmm. unconventional warfare because they had had to practice it in terms of dealing with the, the Native Americans, the indigenous population that was often hostile to the interests of, of Hispanics. And that's the other, that's another aspect of this that we have to understand Tejanos as being frontiersmen in some respects in the same way that Anglos were frontiersmen. There was mm -hmm. the constant challenge of Native Americans, and there was this sense, this Euro-American sense of uh, superiority and of entitlement to the land that uh, Mexicans were just as guilty of as, as Anglo-Americans were. So for people like Juan Seguin and Erasmo Seguin and whatnot, independent Indian groups such as Apaches and Comanches and so forth, they stood in the way of progress, and they were to be either uh, absorbed uh, or pushed away. Right. Uh, they were certainly to be kept in line. So he, it was just the nature of how you thought as a as a Euro American at the time, and it, it was it was part and parcel of what they had to deal with during the the revolutionary period. That Tehan, um, and by the revolutionary period, it kind of gets extended through the 1830s. Fighting Indian encroachment uh, was part and parcel of what was expected of both Tejanos and 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 Anglo frontiersmen. So they shared that mm -hmm. struggle. As well, so let's get into into Juan's history specifically. How does he come into the Texas Revolution, and what is his role throughout it? Well, he had been, as I said earlier, uh, because he was expected to uh, establish a leadership for himself, a leadership role in the community. He'd already served in the town council in the ayuntamiento. He had he had been elected alcalde 
for the year 1834. But the way that the Mexican system worked, if a position um, above yours opened up, then you were expected to fill it. So by default, because um, a man named Ramon Musquiz uh, was unable to serve at the beginning of 1834 as, as jefe político, Juan had to step into the role. So hmm. at a very young age, he's, he's still not even 30 years old. Here he is the chief executive officer for the province of Texas in, 18, in 1834. So he's communicating with all kinds of people. He's communicating back to the capital at the time, Monclova, down in Coahuila, He's mm-hmm. communicating with the Anglo colonies. He's communicating with the other political chiefs of the other departments of Texas. So he's, he's for all intents and purposes, the man in the department of Bejar, which was the largest of the three departments that Texas had just been divided into and was the one where the Tejano population was in the majority. The other two, the Anglos were in the majority. So he'd already established, and he had a working relationship with people like Stephen F. Austin. He, his father had not only been friends with Stephen F. Austin, but they had taken Brown Austin, Stephen's brother, into mm-hmm. their home so he could learn Spanish. All the evidence suggests he never did actually learn English to any degree. I'm sure he had a few words, but mm-hmm. he never learned it well. He had working relationship with, with all of these characters. So when the political breakdown in Coahuila happens in 1835, and he's a militia officer at the time, one of the things that he does is he, he goes, uh, he takes a unit of the militia uh, down to Coahuila to try to extricate the governor who's under threat from the national authorities. And I don't want to get too convoluted about the the politics at the time, but the national government under the leadership of Santa Ana uh, in 1834 had decided to throw out the constitution, the federal constitution and supplement and and replace it with a a centralist. Um, And so there was uh, the state's, uh, the Mexican states that decided to resist the national government's uh, move to centralism included uh, places like Zacatecas and Yucatan, but it also included Texas, part of Coahuila, and that part of Coahuila and Texas were struggling against the elites in Saltillo that were supporting the central, the centralized mm-hmm. move. Anyway, he gets involved in all of this. So from a very, from a very early date, he chooses sides. He chooses the same side his father had chosen, which is federalism. And one of the consistent things that we're going to see with Juan is that when Texas formally rebels against the national government in the fall of 1835, uh, it does so saying that the government has gone back on its word to have a federalist form of government and is not giving Texas the opportunity to form its own state government. And and the Seguins support that position. It's only natural because he had been a militia officer, so he had commanded Tejanos before, that Juan then incorporates himself into the Texas Army, which at at that time, technically at least, was fighting for the Constitution of 1824, he incorporates himself as a as a captain of, of, of Tejano troops, and he serves that way until January, when it seems that things have calmed down and all the Mexican troops have been expelled from Texas. He serves as, as local judge for a little while, and then Santa Ana 
Scott's campaign comes back to Texas. The, and in February, late February of 1836, one has to make another decision, which is, do I go back into the service and join the men in the Alamo because the Mexican army has arrived? And so he does. He enters the Alamo. And then we're not sure which night, but thinking the, that it's the 28th, he is sent out as a, as a courier to ask for help. Yes. Um, that, and, and so there's another indication of the value of Juan Seguin to the cause because he is respected not only among the Tejanos, but he's also respected among the, uh, some of the Anglo leadership, at least not all, but some of it. So he's going out as a person who can speak for the rescuing of the Alamo. Of course, he doesn't manage to do that. Nobody does. Right. Uh, there, are other, there are other couriers that go out. He's not the yeah. only one. But uh, one, one of the things that uh, I noticed in, in one of the letters, he's talking about that part of the reason that he is selected is that he, he speaks Spanish and knows the area well and can travel more easily than some of the other ones who were Anglos. So it is not that he left of his own will. Oh, yeah, no. No, I mean, he was selected uh, by, apparently by a popular vote. Well, we don't, we're not that's really his, sure. That's his interpretation. Survive. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but he's, he's, he's chosen because he has the skills that I spoke of earlier mm-hmm. in terms of uh, being a, a leader, Mm-hmm. Uh, being Spanish speaking, uh, knowing the knowing the land well, knowing where to go um, and how to get there, and avoiding the Mexican army, which is in the area. So he's successful in in getting out and uh, arriving in Gonzales and delivering the message that hey, the Mexican army has arrived and they've invested the Alamo and uh, the troops that are held up there aren't going to last too much longer if if we don't get down there. And so the reasons why. Uh, A rescue doesn't take place or or separate from a discussion of Juan's role in it, but Juan remains in the service. So now that he's delivered the message, uh, he kind of uh, is given responsibility for reorganizing a company uh, that can help support the Texan army as it carries out its its maneuvers. And, and in fact, he, uh, he and his men are assigned to evacuate uh, ranches along the San Antonio and the Guadalupe and so forth of scouting, mm-hmm. of, of being a rear guard for the, uh, for the Texan army. And then finally, of course, we get to, to San Jacinto where, and this is corroborated elsewhere, at first is assigned to, uh, the, to protect the baggage. And apparently the, his key and his company felt that this was being done because they were Mexicans and they were not trustworthy, but they wanted in on the fight. And so essentially Sam Houston puts them in, ironically, they're a cav- they are cavalry, mm-hmm. uh, but at San Jacinto, they fight on foot. They are part of the, uh, <clears throat> of the left flank of the Texan army and they, they fought on foot that morning. And they... They received the commendation, not just from Houston, but others uh, saying mm-hmm. how well they had they had fought that day. So they wanted to show that the struggle for Texas independence, at least the Tejanos who participated with him, that it wasn't something that they were doing for somebody else. They were doing it for themselves. They might be Mexicans ethnically, 
They might be Mexicans culturally, but politically, they wanted to be part of this new nation because for a variety of political reasons, uh, Mexico had not done well by Texans and uh, Tejanos in particular. So he, he rises from the rank of captain. Eventually, he's made colonel. He also has the distinction of doing two important jobs right after San Jacinto. One is he accompanies a detachment of uh, Texan troops that are to shadow the Mexican army as it withdraws. The bulk of the Mexican army was still in the field in, mm-hmm. in Texas. Ironically, the reason that they ultimately suffer the defeat that they do when they do is that Santa Ana got captured the day after the Battle of San Jacinto. So um, Santana had divided his troops. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had gone with an advanced guard. He thought it was a mopping up operation. He thought after the Alamo, the the Anglos are going to be running scared. Houston is running scared. They're headed back. We're going to drive these guys out of out of. So big, big miscalculation (laughs) on his part. But uh, the bottom line is that when they when when General Filisola Uh, is given orders by Santa Ana to withdraw, he follows them. Now, how are you going to follow the orders of somebody who's a prisoner of war? But he does. And so the the Mexican army begins to withdraw from Texas, and Seguin is part of the troops that, that shadow it. In fact, again, one of the more controversial aspects of all of this is attitudes toward toward slavery, not just toward Native Americans, but you have to explain that Seguin his men, the other prominent Tejanos of the time, they understood and they accepted slavery as a necessary, maybe even a necessary evil, but nevertheless a necessary requirement for the development of, of Texas if we were gonna if we were gonna partner up with Anglos. So one of the things that he does is he he tells Filisola, I've got orders to recover, I've, I've got orders to recover any slaves that have escaped. And of course, the Mexicans aren't going to return anybody. Uh, But nevertheless, there is that aspect of it that one has to explain within the context of of the times. You're not making excuses for it. You just have to explain it. Why would somebody who's fighting for freedom and liberty be interested in re-enslaving people who've managed to escape slavery? And the answer is, of course, that the Anglos are all talk about not being enslaved by Mexicans and freedom and liberty and all of that. And yet, one of the first things that they do after independence and in the Constitution is all of the African-Americans who had been slaves before and who were indentured to return to the status of, of, of enslaved. It's a very complicated time, and uh, that's what makes part of the story so fascinating. But in, case, in the case of Juan, he's got one more big job that summer, and that is on June 1st, uh, he has a de- the detachment that enters San Antonio and is handed the control of the city from the, the remaining Mexican troops there. So he's, he's entrusted with taking command of San Antonio, which is in, in effect the entry point to Texas, mm-hmm. because south of San Antonio, there wasn't much development at all, right. a couple of ranches and whatnot. But mm-hmm. Texas actually began at San Antonio and uh, Goliad to the southeast and moved east from there. So he's he's given, and during the, um, he remains an important commander until he's elected to Congress, to the Congress of the Republic of Texas as a senator. While he's in control of San Antonio, though, he is also in control of the Alamo. 
He's in control. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the fortification is still the Alamo. Um, he's There's also controversy about that because, of course, he's trying to feed his men. He's trying to mount his men. He's trying to supply them. And he has to take some measures that uh, his uh, fellow Bejareños are, are not really thrilled about. So there are complaints about his time as uh, military commander of San Antonio. And I think this is also part of the story. We have to understand that in the process of taking sides, uh, you're also going to create enemies by the decisions that you that you have to take. So none of these guys is an unalloyed hero. Um, There may be statues to them, but they have feet of clay, you know, and and um, it's been part of the mythology of Texas which is one reason why the governor and other leading politicians in the state were so upset when that book, Forget the Alamo, <laughs> yes. that these guys were being painted as, as crooks. and As, as less than perfect. <laughs> yeah, they, these, they, none of these guys and, and drunks and the rest of right. And the funny thing is, all that stuff is very well known in historical yeah. circles. And, you know, none of, none of what they said is actually the only big point that they make, then they beat a dead horse with it, was about uh, the importance of slavery in the revolution. And it was certainly important. But Juan Seguin is part of that crowd. And he does have his uh, problematic aspects to him after uh, he's also going to become involved. He's a minor player that he's going to become involved in land speculation in San Antonio during the Republic period. I'm trying to get a grip on these men because I think, again, as I said earlier, uh, they help us tell a story of Texas that one can take from the Spanish period all the way up through through the Civil War following following these two men at Asmo and Juan. Uh, so they serve as a, as a good entry point or a better understanding of, of the Tejano life, but they certainly aren't representative of all Tejanos, and right. they certainly aren't people who didn't have any, any foibles, any, any uh, problematic aspects to, to their behavior as, as public figures. Finally, what leads to him leaving Texas? Well, again, I think it's part of, of, of the fact that he is creating, he is creating enemies. And he not only creates uh, some enemies or at least hard feelings among the Tejano population in San Antonio, he also creates enemies among some of these arriving Anglo-Americans who think that, you know, the, these Tejanos were just, they're part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. They really don't matter. We're coming in, we're taking over, and these Tejanos are going to be the workforce. Uh, they're going to be the labor force, but they're, you know, they don't matter at the end of the day. And that's not all Anglos, by the way. That's just right. the one who create enemies and people like Juan Seguin. He's accused by uh, some of these of being a traitor, mostly people who want to get their hands on San Antonio real estate that mm-hmm. Juan, as mayor of the town, was keeping them from getting their hands on. And so there's an Indian raid that he's accused of chickening out on. Uh, later on, there's a there's a raid by a Mexican uh, general who arrives in San Antonio and supposedly starts spreading the rumor that he's in cahoots with Seguin. Mm. And then later in 1842, there is a second Mexican expedition that captures San Antonio briefly. And who's in that expedition? Juan Seguin. 
it kind of sealed the fate for him for until after the Mexican War. And what had happened was that between that first and second expedition, he'd been run out of town by his Anglo opponents. In fact, they had shot one of Seguin's followers. They were coming after him, so he had to go into hiding. He asked for help from the government, and they said, sorry, can't do anything for you. So they kind of turned their back on him. And so he didn't have any choice but to go down to Mexico, which seems weird since he'd just been fighting Mexico. Right. So when he gets down there, turns himself in, it's a very complicated period in Mexican history because people change sides often. There were these political struggles between centralists, yeah. federalists, between liberals and conservatives. But what often happened was that you changed sides. Once you saw that you weren't going to get what you wanted, you just kind of turned yourself in, you turned your army in, and you changed sides. And so this happened on, on numerous occasions by a variety of people. And so Juan is kind of treated that way. Okay, you're willing to change sides. Here's what you got to do if you want to work for us. If you want to work for us, then you have to be willing to go back to Texas Mm -hmm. uh, you have to serve in the military. We are not going to treat you as regular army, however. You're going to remain in a regular. Later on, he's going to apply for a pension from the Mexican government for his military service. Yeah. And he's going to be denied, but there's no record of him ever having served in the regular in the regular army. But he so leaves. they didn't they didn't really trust him. They didn't no, nobody trusted him. Yeah. Nobody trusts anybody. This is the irony of that period of time. And I, that's part of the reason Mexico can't really get its act together. The, because there is no, there's no sense of a, of a particular, what shall I say, philosophy or ideology that will hold people to any given position. In other words, there's way too many men who are willing to change sides. So the, the, essentially, they're in it for themselves. One of the interesting things about Juan, which I have been pursuing, because at some point down the road, I hope there will be a biography of him is precisely that there's the consistency is that he stays with the federalist cause. Even when he's fighting down in Mexico mm -hmm. later on, uh, he's going to be fighting for the Mex for the federalist side, except right. during this period when he's told to go back to Texas with um, General Wool. And so he does. He shows up in in the San Antonio area. And that kind of cements his reputation for a while. During the Mexican War, he does service in northern Mexico. And one of the things that's happening is there's a there's a Texas Ranger unit under the McCullough brothers, and they're yep. kind of they chase them all over the place. They never they never catch them, but they they chase them all over northern Mexico. And at the end of the war, he's you know he's tired. He wants to come back to Texas. Uh, again, he thinks the way, you know, that, yes, one can change sides. One can say, okay, I was wrong. I accept the, that, uh, the defeat. And, and so he writes to uh, Sam Houston saying he wants to come back to Texas. And in fact, he does. And one of the interesting things that happens is he's not, despite the fact that he's accused of fighting against the Texans and being um, a traitor and all of this stuff uh, by McCullough in the in the legislature, which is, I think, the reason why he writes the memoirs to explain himself. Right. He is not. Uh, nobody tries to kill him that we know of. Mm -hmm. uh, he becomes involved in Texas politics again. He is justice of the peace and he runs an electoral district. But at the end of the Civil War during Recon... And by the way, he keeps returning to Mexico. 
to fight in the various wars. He fights in the War of the Reform. He's at the Battle of Puebla. That was a mistake that I corrected uh, from uh, Revolution Remembered because I thought it was his son, who is also a Juan and who had also joined the military. But I have since found the record explaining that Juan himself was at uh, the at Cinco de Mayo, the Battle mm-hmm. of Puebla. It was him. It was one of his last military activities. So he remains engaged as a military person on the frontier, but he has a foot both in Texas and in Mexico. His family, his immediate family, particularly his sons, uh, stay in in Mexico and become prominent themselves. That's another Mm -hmm. story later on. But uh, one of them will actually serve as Mexican consul in a number of Texas cities during the the period of the Mexican Revolution. Um, Wow. So the Seguins, yeah. So And so the public service continues. His son, Santiago, is mayor of of Nuevo Laredo for a while, and and others also have public positions. So there's there's a continuity there. And and Juan is left to his memories. Mm -hmm. Uh, He lives until 1890. So he's the last important survivor and the last Tejano survivor of the uh, Texas Revolution. Uh, that we know of. He is kind of reconciled to Texas and and Texans. And apparently by the 1870s, he and his family come back to San Antonio for a couple of trips. I I still have to, uh, I haven't been able to to get a lot of information on that. So I'm still working. There are a number of areas that are gaps that I'm trying to fill in before I can sit down and write that biography. In the meantime, his father is, uh, Erasmo is taking up most of my time at the moment. I think I can get a biography of him done mm-hmm. first. So I think we're going to yeah. tackle it asmo and then move on to one. Thank you very much, Dr. De La Teja. We sincerely appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. Good luck. Bye. Well, Davis, that was an interesting uh, interview. Uh, I learned a lot that I didn't know before about uh, Juan Seguin, certainly, and about mm-hmm. the circumstances of his life and, and his experiences uh, in Texas. And I think it, it makes me want to to find out more, because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot more to be known. Do, do you think it would be appropriate? I don't know how they're teaching him now, which makes me think I'm going to get online and try to get some Texas history texts. Um, but, and I don't know if they, and so we don't know if they've moved away. They, the storytellers have moved away from the Alamo as the center of the whole battle in this this uh, victorious or this noble death in the cause of freedom. You learn about it and you go, well, some of it wasn't so noble, but some of it was. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, it, it wasn't just Davy Crockett in his, um, I think, have you seen the movie where they show oh, yeah. up and they got the coonskin? The coonskin. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it wasn't just guys like that. It was guys like Juan Seguin. It was um, who I think had to be conflicted because, they were living in they were living in a, in a spanish speaking culture mexican derived from spain they were lords of all they saw they had seguin had social position and i assume a little wealth that comes from land ownership and um all of a sudden these guys are here and pretty soon mr seguin is hip checked out of the way which is a polite way to put it he is um, restored. I think it's fair to say yeah. he's restored some, but now it's time, I would argue, to give him his full due in Texas history. How, how you do that, um, I'm not sure in grade school or, or in public schools, but it's time for us to know because 
again, I told uh, Arnoldo, I warned him, the uh, the criticism of Texas history as being Davy Crockett and John Wayne and, oh, the glorious deaths and all that. You know, I'm 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 cool with all that, except for the John Wayne part. And uh, but the more you learn, the more you appreciate it. I think the more you learn, the more you appreciate it. And there's been guys like De La Teja who have done a lot of scholarship about the contributions or the role that uh, that the, the Tejanos played, which seems to me pretty central because they were uh, cavalry, they uh, were uh, provisioners, they gave cattle, they also rode their horses and checked out what the Mexican army was doing. Without them, you know, you wonder what it was. And here's the thing that puzzles me in a sense. Sam Houston opposed opposed secession and he was so well thought of they didn't do anything to him they just like let him leave you're um, talking about uh during I'm talking the civil about war civil war yes. but before that he and he thought enough of Seguin that he gave him very important very important posts yes i hope i haven't taken a long way around the barn but um uh, so why did Sam Houston trust him? And then after the after the Texas Revolution is over, you know, get out. People turned on him. Yeah, it, lost, it, he lost his position. Yeah, it, it's complicated, but I think we certainly need a lot more research and a lot more documentation to to get a fuller picture of what's going on. And it's it's a very wide, wide canvas that uh, that is uh, available for us to look at. So, I keep uh, hoping when we do this that someone will go, you know, my grandmother had some letters that her mother wrote, and they're stuck back here, and I haven't looked at them forever, and they'll find somebody and give them to somebody yeah, like her. Yeah, yeah. we, we always go back to that, that uh, our listeners, if, if you know of anybody that has anything like that, uh, you know, share it with a university, with a researcher, find somebody who, mm -hmm. who can make good use of them. A museum. Okay. All right. Well. Thank you, Davis, and uh, we will see you in our, hopefully, listen to our, uh, to our next interview. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Once Upon a Time in Texas podcast with Arnold Mata and Davis Rankin. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other sites.